I do have a question for you. Um, Steve already started with a really good question. Um, and I wanted to keep us thinking about, why, I mean, why everything, why reality, but also why the Bible? What do you think the Bible is? Like if you had your mate at work or your friend who you're there watching the kids in the sandpit with or, you know, someone on the phone, your mum, and they said, what is this Bible thing you read? What would you tell them? I want to give us, uh, help us to think through this series, through the Bible, from one particular angle. Because I think that there is a really helpful way to think of the Bible and to read the Bible, which is as a story, as one single unified story. Now, this is not just kid stuff. This is going to sound kid stuff at the start, but I promise you that this is actually going to get super practical and super helpful for you. And it might even change the way that you read the Bible forever. I hope so. I think for many of us actually it will. Now, this is actually a bigger claim than you might think at first, because I want to know, how can something as complex as the Bible be one story? Because for starters, it's not even actually a, a single book. It's a collection of 66 different documents all collected into one volume. 39 in the Old Testament, first half of the Bible, 27 in the New, the second half. And those 66 documents, they're not all accounts of people doing things. Like, they're not all stories. Some are legal documents. Some of them are... are oh, sorry, this is the, uh, for chemists. If you've got any chemists who want to... This is the way you like to do the books of the Bible. Now, some of them are legal documents, right? Some of them are building plans. There's erotic poetry. There's a lot of strange stuff in there. In fact, some of the books are actually themselves collections of other texts, books of songs. There's a book in the Bible that's essentially a book of tweets. Yeah? Who can pick it? What's the book of tweets? Proverbs, right. Yeah, like on reflection, fair enough. That's a, it's a slightly unkind description of the book of Proverbs. It's certainly far more edifying than Twitter. But, you know, if you look at them, all of the Proverbs, they're under 280 characters, right? There's a lot of different types of writing. And not just that, this epic collection doesn't just come from the pen of just one author. It's not like the collected works of um, C.S. Lewis or Annika Claywaite maybe one day or something like that, right? It's got content from many different people. As best as we can tell, there were around 35, oh, I went too fast, sorry. There were around 35 to 40 different people or groups of people who were responsible just for the final form of the books of the Bible. Like that's without taking into account the, the Hebrew storytellers who told the stories for generations uh, and then eventually they were, they were codified or the people who wrote songs that were then stuck into a story. So the person who wrote the song is obviously a separate author at some level from the person who wrote it. What about the eyewitness accounts that, that Luke collected? All of those different authors of their little bit that Luke then put into his gospel and into the book of Acts. There are so many different people contributed to this and it wasn't even all written at the same time. In fact, it was written across a period of well over a thousand years. Some of these authors lived generations away from each other. In fact, most of them. See, how, I want to ask you, how can a collection of that many different documents, of completely different types, with so many different people telling the story from so many different centuries, different locations, different cultures, different languages, form one story that makes sense. It's actually humanly not possible, I would say. So this is a thing that we're going to do. We're going to look at Scripture and we're going to find out if it actually does have the characteristics of a story. Now, 
we do. I, I think there is an example of something that is almost as complex as that, telling one single story. Is there anyone here who likes superhero movies? You know the Marvel ones? Anyone a superhero movies person? Yeah, because a couple of people put their hand up. It's be less popular these days. Now look, if you look at the superhero movies, right, some of them are dramatic. Some of them are epic. Some of them are silly. Some of them are in basically feminist diatribes. They're all sorts of, they're just different. They do different things but they each form a part of an overarching story. You see, they actually all converge together at the final movie called Endgame. Individual stories, they sort of, for the most part, stand alone fine, but they actually all converge at a final point where everything climaxes. And when God decided he wanted to give us something that makes everything make sense, he gave us story. How interesting. What a strange idea. When we write biblical theologies, like, or we write theology books, uh, there's like a chapter on sin. Then there's a chapter on uh, what happens in the end times. There's a chapter on Jesus. Then there's a chapter on this bit of Jesus, this bit of Jesus, this bit of Jesus. And we categorize. And yet God, in his kindness, in his wisdom, because he knows what we're like, gave us a story. Now, we, we, we do stories, like we, we are storied people. We, when, when, when you get home from, from work or from wherever you've been, someone says, oh, how was it? We tell a story. We stop and we gather a few events. We, can't, we don't say everything. We just gather a few events, put them into a sequence that makes sense in order to make sense of our day and how we feel about it. We use stories all the time to give our lives meaning, to give our lives context, uh, say, say that, in fact, we can all tell different stories about the same thing. Say your team, you're at work, your team missed the sales quota this month. You're trying to get this, sell this many widgets and you didn't get there. One bloke comes home and says to his wife, yep, smashed it again. I killed it. Sure, we missed our sales quota, but that's, you know, that's Gordon's fault. Someone else comes home, says to their husband, we missed our quota and no one yelled at me. I call that a win. <laughs> Slightly, slightly different story. Someone else comes home and says to their housemate, yet another day of failure, I'll never succeed in life. Exactly the same events. And yet another person comes home and tells their friends, I got through today. Wow, I got through today. Maybe there's hope after all. You see, we, we, we're a culture of stories. We're storytellers. I mean, I mean, what does everyone watch on Netflix at the cinema? Stories. Even, even, even the stand-up comedians, if, if, that, if that's what you choose to watch, aside from the 99% of stuff that's all stories, they are telling stories in their comedy. We, we use them to help us make sense of our reality. And God is going to use this story to help us make sense of the whole of history. In fact, to make sense of your existence. Now, you might think that that's a bit basic. But I want to tell you, if you can follow the basic storyline of the Bible, then you can unlock the whole thing. We are going to come along and there are going to be stories that you have heard in your Bible and you've never understood what on earth was going on in there. And all of a sudden it is going to become clear. I'm getting, in one sense, I hope to give you the keys to the Bible in this series. You'll grow in your sense of what you're here for. You'll grow in the, the feel of the drama of your relationship with God that will deepen. You'll find your story, your, who you are, here in God's story. 
My prayer is it'll change all of our lives. All right, now, who here has done grade nine? Maybe you've taught it. Not looking at anyone in particular. Grade nine English or grade eight English recently. Does anyone remember what is in a story? Now, if I was to put it in this order approximately, you being a teacher of such things, would this look about right? Cool. So, Freytag's Pyramid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know who Freytag was, but he's got a weird last name. But what he did was to help us say, okay, if you're going to see any story, you'll see these things. There's always going to be something that sets the scene. So you get who's the main character, what's the setting, is it in a, a suburban house in you know, uh, North Brisbane, and it's the drama that goes on there. Or is it Tony Stark saving the multiverse? Right? You can't, like the, the, the scope could be different. Uh, then, then all of a sudden we'll find out, hold on, what's the problem? What's the thing that's gone wrong that we're trying to solve? Is it that the girl saw the guy and thinks that he's not a nice guy and then all of a sudden the two who you know must get together because you saw them in this nice image and they must get together, therefore. And so therefore, like, how, how are they going to get together because, oh, they're not together? There's this some, some complication or maybe it's that, uh, you know, the, the, the dog is lost and, we, and the dog has to find its way home. Well, there'll be something that goes wrong and then there'll be the tension and the little attempts to resolve, little attempts to resolve, a climax. Then it starts, the dust starts to settle and we see where it all ends. And so what we're going to do is we're actually just going to start reading the Bible and see if the Bible looks like a story or not. And see if as we read it, and if we respect it as a story, as we listen to let it unfold itself, to see if it does something to us as we do it. And I particularly want to say one thing now. What, um, what is the worst thing? You're about to go see a movie. What's the worst thing that anybody can do? You're about to read a book. You're about to go see a movie. And someone comes up to you and, and they offer spoilers. Oh, yeah, the plot twist is great. I didn't realize that Darth Vader was Luke's father or whatever it might be. Right? So you guys, I actually want you to, uh, this is a bit hard to do because a lot of you guys, like some of you guys here I know, you've cheated. You've read the end of the Bible and you know, <laughs> you know how this ends. But I want you to give yourself a chance to not spoil it. Every time you're in a, you're in a little tension, don't resolve it. I don't want to hear the name Jesus for the next 10 weeks. No, that's not true. But, but, but in a way, I almost kind of don't want to. I want you to just sit in the drama. Imagine if we didn't have the gospel. Feel it. Feel the story of God and humanity. See how you go. All right, Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3. Let's see if the first episode of the Bible introduces the characters and the setting as we might expect. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. And straight away, it's there, isn't it? It sets the scenes, the setting, the time. When does this happen? In the beginning, the start of all things. This story claims to begin at the beginning of our universe. But it's not just the time, actually, because straight away, we get the setting to God created both the heavens and the earth, which in Jewish cosmology means everything. The earth is the realm of the physical, and the heavens are where the gods live, the spiritual realm. See, like we said, some stories are local and intimate. Uh, Daredevil is a story about a sort of like a little patch, a little suburb in New York, and there's a superhero who's like just running around the streets there, and there are other ones that affect the whole world. Uh, there's a story, uh, a movie that I watch called In Bruges. Uh, it's a film about two men who are hitmen, and they're hiding out 
in Bruges. That's basically it. <laughs> I'm not sure anything else happens in this story. That's the whole movie. Blokes waiting in a hotel in a small town in Belgium. And yet, other movies, like, say, this one, affect the fate of an entire galaxy long, long ago. What Genesis is saying is that the Bible is the story of every inch of reality in both the physical and the spiritual realms, like of everything that we can possibly know, which means that if you want to know what are the stakes for this story, they are quite high. This story could not start in a way that says anymore, everything depends on this. Because everything is, does depend on this. This is the story of everything. We get the setting. Now, the setting begins without form. It begins unfilled. It's without form and it was empty. It's got no discernible spaces. It's just all like a mush together. And even if there were spaces, then there wouldn't be anything to put in them. It's formless and empty. And it's now that we're introduced to the first character of the story, which in most stories, the first character you're introduced to is the main character, right? And so as we look at it, we see in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. You see, if we want to read this text well, we have just in the fourth word of this text worked out something that is huge. God is the main character, not just of this text, but actually of the whole universe. It might make sense on an abstract level, but I want you to stop and think about your week. God was the main character. If we want to read this text well, we'll stop and consider the implications of these things. Now, what do we find out about this God? This God, he speaks he speaks, God says. This is a speaking God. He's a, he's a relational being. He likes to talk. He connects. Then he creates. He creates light. He's a creating God. He's someone who not just creates, but he then illuminates things. He actually allows people to perceive. He gives people the ability to, to see, to understand. He not only makes things, but allows us to experience them by giving light. I don't know if you've thought about that. There's stuff, but you would not be able to experience God's gifts if he did not give you that. Now, as we go on, our Genesis through the, the days, um, you, guys could probably, you guys could probably call it out. Uh, what does God create on day? So day one, God creates light and dark, separates night from day. What does God create on day two? Uh, yep, yep, sky. So water above, water sky in between, water above and water below. Uh, what does God create day, day three? Yep, land, sea, then create day four. Ooh, that's good. That's, that's, that's the next thing, but we actually should have snuck it back into the previous one. The vegetation sneaks back into day three, which is interesting. We'll pick that up in a second. Why? Day five? Day five? Yeah, fish and the birds. So it fills the, fills the sky above and the water below. And then day six, the land animals and all of the creatures. You see, God creates form. He creates spaces. He, he's like, a, he's like, a, like an artist sitting down and this artist sits down on this, um, on this uh, hillside. I just want you to imagine, imagine it. Or imagine it's you. Maybe you like painting and you're there, but you don't just sit there like with all your stuff's in your bag, grab out a pencil and then sort of start sketching on your hand. You get out, you get out your, your, your easel maybe. You get out your, your, your book. 
paints, blobs of paint, the right blobs of paint, the right spots. I've got all my paintbrushes here that I need. I've got the water for the watercolours. I've got everything. Okay, that's, oh no, I need to clip that on. Okay, my spaces are set up, organised. And now I'm going to fill it with beauty. Something that was formless. It didn't have spaces. It didn't have differentiated spaces for different things. Disorganised becomes organised as the God gives structure to his universe. And then just splashes of beauty, just full of life, of goodness. And one of the, the interesting thing about the fact that the, that day three, the, the, uh, the land wasn't finished until it had enough goodness in it so that when he filled the land with living things, that they had something to eat, that they had goodness, that they had life-giving sustenance. He not only created life, he made sure that there was enough life to sustain the other life. He is good. Every few verses, it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And then he blesses. He blessed them. He wanted more. He wanted more beauty. You're, you're a beautiful thing, but why, why don't you create more beautiful things like yourself? This multiplying beauty and goodness. There's space for the stars, water for the fish, air for the birds, land for the ground animal. You swap any of those and it's not going to work. Each has exactly what it needs to support the beings that are placed there. If we're trying to understand the character, the main character, who is he? What is he like? If a story always sets up what you need to know about the main character so that the complication, the tension makes sense, what do we need to be having in our heads about God so that the next chapter makes sense? It's that this God, yes, he structures, yes, he gives, but he is, does all of that for the good of those that he gives it to. It's just right for them. It is fitting. He is good and loves to give good. Now, there's another character too. We get to a second character here. Uh, he creates something special as we get down to verse, uh, where are we, verse, oh, sorry, we had some cute little things. Just again, give you the inspiration of the beauty and goodness of the world to think about the provision of God, plants for the animals. But then as we get to this, this, this special creation, we actually have something called someone in the image of God, a race of, of images now, being in the image of God wasn't something unknown to people in the ancient Near East. Like, like, like plenty of kings claimed to be in God's image. But only kings would do that. It was a way of saying, oh, I, I've got God's right to be here and to be in charge of everything. And yet here, God's word here is actually quite countercultural in a way, isn't it? Here, you've got royal dignity given to every member of the race. Male, female, prince, pauper. Oh. But, but, but there's not just formality, not just this role. Not, you're not all just sort of Prince Williams and Prince Harry's and Princess Anne's. And there's actually purpose to that image. So I'll, I'll read verses 26 to 28 for us again, just to try and see. Because there's a little chiasm. What that is is where you've got like one thing, and it's wrapped, wrapped like a sandwich. You've got it's wrapped by two bits of bread. What's the bread and what's the middle? Think about it. Have a think about it. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, 
so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, you've got it on a weird thing. I haven't separated it out nicely for you. But did anyone pick up the thing that was at the start and the end and what was in the middle that it centered around? There's an element here where the being created in God's image of all humanity was actually for a purpose. It was for, for rule. It was to, to, to represent him and to rule over creation. Um, kings in the ancient world, once you, once you conquered a territory, and we would have, we've seen this in Daniel, haven't we? You build a statue of yourself. It's the image of you. The image of you ruling over. As someone walks into the town square and they say, who rules here? They're like, oh, that guy, he's standing right there. We are the statues. We are the, 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 the we're God's image. We're skipping a little bit forward. So I know I'm doing spoilers and I said no spoilers, but I'm not going too far. Only one book. Does anyone remember the second commandment? Ah, second commandment of the uh, Exodus 10 commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol, or literally an image. Don't make an image. Don't make any image to represent God's. Why? It's because you are the image. That's why that commandment's there. You make something that can't speak, what kind of a representation of God is that? I'm a speaking God. I'm a relating being. I have life in myself. This statue, you've, I don't care how good you carve that wood. It's no Bart. It's no Lucy. It can't talk like them. It can't relate. It can't have fun. It, can, it, it, can't, it, can't ha- it doesn't have that spark of life within it at all. But they do. You do. And so our role, we are the evidence that God is actually the king of this creation. We are the, we are the, 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 the image sitting in the town square where, that, that the creation looks at and says, there is a God because there is a speaking God because they look at us and they see how we are. And we are the evidence of that. So we are both the sign of God's rule over this world and the means by which he does the ruling. Anything lesser than you would be utterly inadequate to represent the God of the universe. The world was not very good, if you remember, until humanity, until you, were a part of it. Now, in a way, creation actually itself sort of becomes a third character in this story because of its interactions with us. So if we were going to uh, sort of think of the characters, we've got God, but then we've got the world that God created, but then the, the images of God who are ruling over that world. And there's relationships between each one of these. God, the good creator and provider, is in connection with his people. He is the the one who gives. He's the one who sets things up, which is the opposite, by the way, once again, of the gods of the ancient world. God wanted his people to know that you're not like the the, the people in Babylon whose job is to provide food for their god Marduk, and he needs you to feed him. No, no, you don't feed me. I feed you. I provide for you. I'm the giver. That's how I want things to be. 
I, I, like you, you feel needy coming to me? Yeah, yeah, that's okay, I'm God. That's how this works. That's how this relationship works. You're like, oh, but God, I feel like you've given me everything and I don't deserve this. Yeah, I know, I love you. That's how this works. You're like, God, but like, can I even ask for that? Yeah, that's how this works. You don't work for me. You don't work to get things from me. I am the blessed good provider. You are blessed by my good. And then in turn, then we take care of the world for God to, 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 to rule the world. In fact, that's what we, were, what we were given the task to. So in fact, actually, if we were going to say what kind of story is the Bible, we're going to do a couple of little versions of this. But the first one is actually, this is an adventure story. This is a climb the mountain story. Uh, have any of you guys seen um, this movie, Free Solo? See a guy named Alex Hanold, like just the ridiculous frog fingers this man has. He climbed El Cap, which is this incredible rock face in Yosemite National Park, uh, free solo, meaning not just I've got a rope around my waist and as I go up, I've got to put some things in and I'll only fall about 10 metres and you know, that would hurt a lot, but at least I won't die. No, no, no. He climbed on his own, no ropes. It's just man, rock, goes up. And so the question in your mind is, well, I've seen the interview, so I know he survived, so it's okay. <laughs> but, the, but will he get to the top? That's not a foregone conclusion. And this is the Bible. The first story of the Bible is you have been given a universe. The earthly portion of it, not the heavenly, that's for, me, that's, that's for me and other things, but for the earthly portion of it, you guys get to conquer. Are you up for it? Is humanity going to win? Are you going to be able to tame the world? Are you going to be able to, just giving forward just a half a chapter, spread the garden across the whole of the world? This is the, the tension of our story. Now, um, Mel and I went to uh, Mariah Island recently, um, and... I know that, I, I know that like, it could almost sound, when, when we talk about humans, your job is to have dominion over the world. It can sound kind of bad. Like, it can almost just sound like industrialization, you know, and all of the pollution that sort of kind of came with our first attempts at that, right? Um, but when, when we were listening to this, this ranger, uh, was it Rosie, I think? Something like that. Anyway, um, there was actually, the way that she spoke was really interesting. She said, I want you to explore... She was giving this full briefing of what you can and can't do on Mariah. And she said, I want you to explore and discover places. And I want you to fall in love with them. Because you can only care for what you've discovered. And we only look after what we have come to care about. So it may seem paradoxical at first. But she was saying, no, actually, and, and we saw as, 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 you know, we had a human brief us on what we can and can't do on Mariah Island. So even to keep Tassie wild actually is going to require a lot of human intervention. Active human dominion to preserve what God has made. Now, there is a little coda to our story, a little bit at the end. Well, hold on. Uh, I think I put it back before this. That's what happened. I put the wrong... Yes, Genesis 2, 1 to 3. We haven't read this bit. Let's read it together. Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. God has finished creating the heavens, finished creating the earth. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it special because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. See, God ceases 
at the end of this story. Not so much like rests as if he was tired, like he kind of seems to be able to speak stars into existence. It, it seems like it's not too taxing. But, but switching activities from construction to cherishing the construction, from building the Lego Formula One car, sorry, just that's what we do, to driving it around the track, from the hard work to cherishing, from workday to holy day to holiday. It's an image of what creation is headed towards, towards rest, stopping, enjoying, and cherishing the beauty of what God has done. Now, my hope here is that this week and every week, you start to see how the Bible moves and speaks as if it's a story. The story of this world, our, our story, telling us who the main character of history is, why the main character, who the main character of Hobart is. It's actually God's main character of Hobart. Not, what's the, what's the Mona dude? Yeah, it's not him. God's the, the personality in Hobart. And the story will tell you who you are and who you were made to be as well. So three, three things, three things. When we read Hobart, when we read the, the, the city, the culture, we need to read it as a chapter in this story that we are reading now in the Bible. See, that person sitting across from you in that cafe, they're not just a homo sapiens, as our world has trained us to think of them, a highly evolved animal. They're a divine being. And God and them have a relationship whether it's a good one or a bad one, it's hard to tell sometimes from, from seeing, but, but he provides for them bountifully. He cares about them. Look at how well they're adapted to their environment. Look at how well they're going. Look, at, look how, look how God-like they are. They can speak and relate and connect and converse and bless with their words and their actions. But the thing that to remember about them also is that if they don't know God, that's awful. But I don't think about that always when I'm in the, in, in, the, in the cafe because they just look like they're going great and having a lovely coffee. I feel jealous of them because, ooh, that coffee looks good with the banana bread. And... See, one of the byproducts of living in a world without God is that we get our, like our gut vibe of what's right and wrong from the world that we live in. Like, you just can't avoid that, right? So in the 1950s, if you had a child out of wedlock, it was shame, embarrassment, trying to hide it, all this sort of stuff. Like, my family's got all sorts of weird stuff that happened because of that kind of thing. It had a stigma. Kids raised in the 2020s will not inherit that, 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 that sense. They won't feel the need to hide that. Their, their ick factor, what makes them feel embarrassed, is completely different because of what they've grown up in. And as the Western world has moved away from belief in a transcendent being, when we lost God, we lost the gut instinct that to mistreat God matters. But the problem is, is that whether it does or has, does not matter to mistreat God has not changed. The, the true story is that God matters because He is the God of this world. He is, he is, we are His image. We are meant to represent Him. That is, that is the truth about every human, not just Christians. You see, if, if I see someone fed and cared for, that's important, but I feel that that's important. And if I see two people treating each other well rather than fighting, my heart feels way more at ease. I love that, especially, you know, my kids playing well with each other. But if I see people just going about their lives normally as if God didn't exist, I don't feel so bad. Like, I don't, just think, I don't just think, ooh. Like, if we forget to pray at, at dinner and my kids don't sort of 
thank God. I mean, maybe they're having their heads, and sure, not, not, you know, but, but if I don't see, 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 hear them thanking God and speaking to God about their day and stuff like that, I don't just, I don't just have that gut level instinct like, oh, whoa, God, he, like your things are like, oh, I hope, you know, um, this doesn't seem right. Like, it seems like that would be a big problem. But if I lived this story, if I read my world through this story, I would see that's a problem. Because God made people to be with him, to relate to him. He's a speaking God, to be holy to him, special to him. His representatives, literally God-like. So we need to read Hobart, read ourselves in this story's light. Now secondly, we, we, don't need, we have to make sure we don't misread ourselves. You see, you are God-like. There's one thing you know about who you are in this passage, is that you are like him powerful, you can speak and relate. You know who you are, you've been given an identity, you are, you are a representative of, of the king of the universe, your value is, is, is placed at, at a massively high level because of, because of the, the, the blessings with which you've been blessed and the jobs you've been given and you've been given then the freedom to go do it. The freedom to, to, to just go and, God's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to dominate the world, that's your job, I'm letting you guys have a go, I'm letting you guys have a turn. We've been given value, identity, the freedom that we want to do it. And don't disbelieve those things. That's true. That's who you are. When we, when we think of ourselves as worthless, we feel that. Oh, I know it's hard to unfeel that. But it's not the truth. When you think you don't have a place in the scheme of things and you don't belong, that's not true. Though you feel it. When you feel like my, my contribution, because it's so small, doesn't seem to matter in the big scheme of things, God's like, what are you talking about? You're a divine agent of royalty. Don't misread who you are. And of course, when you feel like, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. I can treat God or people how I want. Again, don't misread who you are. You are to rule the world under God. Lastly, is anyone here tired? <laughs> You know, I'm tired. I'm a little tired. I just came back from holiday. I'm a little tired. Uh, you need to rest. We need to rest. God did. And you're like him in all the ways that make it appropriate to rest. And you are unlike him in all the ways that mean that you need to. Now, this is, I'm about preaching a sermon to myself here. I try to take a Sabbath. I, I, a day not of like, oh, I'm taking a day of like work, work stuff and, and then go do the bits and pieces of life, like, you know, you've got to fix the car or whatever else. No, 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 but a day when my wife and kids know that I've, 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 I'm ceasing from everything to be with them and my God. But the problem is my wife and my kids know that I've not really been doing that. I need to guard my Sabbath. I need to keep it. We need it. I need to take a day to stop. Now, I know that's hard. I'm here confessing that I've not done it. It was hard back in Bible times too, though. God had to command it. Like, think how scarce just getting food on your plate was back then. You think your life's busy? Well, why is it busy? I know it's very busy. I know that I don't even get how busy it is. But these guys were busy just trying to get food, to not starve. And God says, stop getting food. Trust me. You cannot get food for one day. I'll take care of you. It'll be okay. And all the other nations are all off getting more food. He's like, no, 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 no. Stop. I'm good. 
you remember me? Do you remember what I did for you? I'm the provider, remember? I'm the one who gives you all the things. I'm the one who puts you in a place that can sustain you and can provide for you. I give you everything that you need. I know it's hard to trust that, but that's the point. That's your job. I'm the giver. You are the receiver. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for introducing us yourself to us. We thank you for setting the scene. Thank you for helping us to see what's important. Help us to see that you are the main character of this. Father, help us to see you rightly, to trust in your goodness. Father, we pray that you would enable us to see ourselves rightly, to know who we're meant to be, to feel the value that you have bestowed on us. Father, also we pray that you would help us to imitate you and to rest, to take time to appreciate the beauty of your world, beauty of creation, beauty of friendships, beauty of all of the good that you have with thankful hearts to you, to take a holy day. Father, it seems almost impossible to do that. And yet, Lord, you bless that day. Father, we pray that you give us wisdom to start to see our world in the context of this story. Help us to understand the Bible as we go along. And Lord, please bless us as we do so. For we ask it in your Son's name. Amen.